What's going on, guys? Thanks so much for tuning in. Today is the final installment of Mastering the Squat Bench and Deadlift with Paul O'Need. Um, if you haven't checked out the previous episodes, I'd highly recommend you checking them out. These are meant to stand alone, so you don't need to see them. But if you're serious about improving all three lifts, uh, it's, it's a really, really fantastic resource. So first off, Paul, thanks for jumping on again and, and uh, finishing off the series. Thanks, man. Thank you for having me. This has been uh, really fun so far, and I think uh, I think this is probably going to be the most interesting one. Yeah, so I want to start off um, with basically talking about the difference between sumo and conventional, because okay. this is something that a lot of people, aka Darrell, hate on and uh, <laughs> just talk a lot of shit about. And um, but but anyways, I want to set a couple things straight. Uh, about some of the differences, the muscular contributions, differences in anthropometrics, individual strength, things like that. So um, what, what are the primary differences between those two and how would you identify whether or not someone's going to be maybe predisposed to being better at one than the other? So, <clears throat> the, I mean, the primary difference is quite easy to see. Like in the sumo deadlift, you're going to have a wide foot stance and a grip inside of the feet. Uh, conventionally, you're going to have a narrow foot stance, hands outside of the, outside of the feet. Um, the primary difference anthropometrically, I wouldn't look so much there as I would just into the natural tendencies of the lifter. Uh, I'm a big fan of having beginner lifters pull both styles. Um, whereas with an elite level lifter, you need to base your decision making a lot more on dynamic correspondence. So is my energy best spent doing exercise A or exercise B? The answer is whichever carries over to your main lift. With a younger lifter, they're still learning how to move their body through space. They're still trying to develop, you know, general physical preparedness. The more, you know, the more different patterns that they can become proficient in, the better they will be. Not only that, like sumo deadlift is going to really strengthen the hips. Uh, even if it's done, um, with submaximal weights, you're still going to get a good carry over there in terms of hip strength. Um, and then with conventional deadlift, you're going to get a really, really strong back. So, um, my number one recommendation is don't try to fit a square peg into a round hole. If the, if the lifter has a very hard time pulling sumo and they just don't feel comfortable with it, let them pull conventional and vice versa. Um, when we look at the actual shape of the body, uh, sumo deadlifters will tend to have uh, longer torsos, uh, shorter femurs. Um, conventional deadlifters typically think of that like long-limbed physique, a lot of legs, a lot of arms. Um, they'll be able to start in a higher hip position and keep the bar much closer to that vertical plane of the hip. And essentially that's all that we're looking for when we're looking at which uh, technique is more appropriate. It's in what position can the lifter put themselves in the most advantageous position to move the weight. So from a leverage perspective, um, I, uh, I often will get lifters want to experiment with the other lift. If it's a conventional deadlifter, you're going to have a hard time convincing me. Um, especially if it's a conventional deadlifter, who's quite proficient at a conventional deadlift. Like if you're pulling 700 pounds plus unconventional and you think that sumo is a good switch for you and you squat narrow, eh, maybe not. Um, but, uh, if a sumo, like 
the sumo deadlift the way that I coach it, as you know, we're doing quite a bit of conventional work, right? Um, the sumo is pretty much done for technique um, and position work. Uh, and then very sporadically, we'll sprinkle in some heavy singles. Uh, but that's just my philosophy on training the sumo deadlift. And I know there's a lot of other ones as well. Uh, and that was a very long-winded answer. No, no, it definitely makes sense. And um, <clears throat> as far as like loading strategies, would, would you have any sort of, have you noticed any sort of differences from uh, like a fatigue or recovery standpoint between the two? Oh, for sure. So uh, actually, before we move on to fatigue, there's one thing I did want to mention too, is, is the, um, the way the lifter squats will give a good indication of whether they will prefer sumo or conventional deadlift because of the, the shape of the hip, the hip socket. So if the lifter prefers a wider stance squat, they likely have a bit more of a shallow hip socket and can externally rotate the knees really well. Someone with a deeper hip socket uh, will not have that same hip rotation capacity and likely will not favor um, favor that wide stance deadlift position. Uh, and uh, Greg Knuckles actually did a really interesting review looking at the strongest deadlifters uh, and squatters. And overwhelmingly, they squatted and deadlifted with similar stances. So those wide stance squatters or moderate stance squatters typically pulled sumo and vice versa, narrow stance squatters typically pulled conventional. Um, now, as far as fatigue goes, you're going to have a much steeper decline in performance as fatigue increases with the sumo deadlift. Reason being is looking at leverages. So in the sumo deadlift, off the floor, your leverages are the worst at the, of the lift. As the bar leaves the floor and the hips start traveling forward, your leverages increase. So with a sumo deadlifter, typically they will, they will either miss falling forward at lockout because they gave up their back off the floor or they won't be able to break the floor. Conventional, typically they're missing above the knee because that's where the leverages get worse. You're over the bar more. Now, what that means is if the leverages are worse, that means force has to be developed faster to overcome inertia. But if you're fatigued, your rate of force development will drop. So with a sumo deadlift, where your leverages are poor off the floor, if you're fatigued and have a poor rate of force development, you're going to have much more variable performances on training days. But you stand to increase your performance if you, if you peak properly. So a lot of my sumo deadlifters tend not to deadlift very heavy during meat prep. And then as soon as it's ready for the meat, they're really fresh and they can go pull a nice heavy single PR. My conventional deadlifters, on the other hand, they'll be able to carry more fatigue into training because their rate of force development will not determine how successful they are in their performance because leverages are best off the floor. So you're able to break off the floor without as much rate of force development, and then you're going to be able to carry through. Um, it's much more of a, I would call the conventional deadlift much more of a, a strength oriented lift. And the sumo deadlift is way more technical, much more nuanced, uh, very highly dependent on positioning because of that terrible leverage position off the floor. That's one thing that I think I've seen a lot of people mess up on uh, the sumo deadlift, especially since I started working with you. Like for me, I just thought it was that I had shitty hip mobility. And I mean, partly that's true, obviously, but um, <laughs> you know, with, with, 
the more that I'm working on it, the more that I'm seeing like, oh, okay, like eventually I'll be able to get into these much, much better positions. And um, a lot of the times, like you were saying, there's, there's those kind of two types of lifters where they miss it. Either it's like doesn't break the floor or they miss it kind of at the top. And I've seen a lot of lifters give up their upper back just to get the bar moving. Right. And then it ends up turning into this like, you know, sumo stance, conventional deadlift. And you can see the, the leverages are like almost the same as, as the conventional at the top. It's like their shoulders are way over the bar, their yeah. hips are fired up and they're, they're like super far back. And like, what, what are some of the things that you use to cue someone outside of just being like, Hey, you gotta, you gotta be more patient off the floor and just hold the position. Um, there's a few things that I'll, I'll teach. Number one is making sure that they are in really good position already. So we'll cue positioning, we'll cue hips to the bar, we'll cue chin back, uh, we'll cue armpits closed to engage the lats. Um, then from an exercise, I, I'm, as you know, I'm very big on letting the exercise teach versus just me using my words, right? So a movement that forces the lifter to be in perfect position, something like a library deadlift, which is a slow controlled eccentric sumo deadlift with a light touch and go. Okay. And, and by light touch and go, I mean, like, I don't, like we're in a library. I don't want to hear the plates touch the ground that forces them to be in the most high tension positions on the eccentric. Eventually they learn and build resilience in those positions and they can achieve them off the floor. Uh, things like pump fake deadlifts where you will, uh, pull your first, your first pull to the knee, make sure that you're in good position, pause, drop, full deadlift. Then there's also the, um, for lifters who use a dynamic start. So who will start with the hips high and then swing them in as they pick up their chest. I'll take that away from them. I'll say static start sumo deadlift. So force them to get tension out of the bar without, without that dynamic start. And that will also help to improve the positioning of the hips off the floor. Yeah, that's one thing I've seen a lot from because I'm not exactly sure why, but I've coached quite a few guys from Westside, yep. um, like who who were at uh, were using that uh, that style of training, yep. and they like to do everything really really explosively, and so I'd have to like slow them down and be like, hey, look, like you're already fast, you're already really powerful, we're not gaining anything from that. You got to really just like be patient, dial things in, and focus on your technique because that's like you're losing like 50 pounds in your deadlift or squat. Well, actually not squat, but mostly just the deadlift. Um, by yeah. Yes and no, because they might be like, if they hit that dynamic start perfect, they might hit, have a huge lift, but the inconsistency of the dynamic start is where they're, where they have the issue. Yeah. And that's what I'm talking about, right? Like you look at someone like Dan Green or Keller Willem and it's like, well, they do a dynamic start. It's like, yeah, but all their deadlifts look the same. Yes. Right? And, and so for most people, they're not at that level of like technical proficiency where I'm like, that's fine to do. I usually explain it like this. I'm like, look, that's fine to do. There's nothing wrong with that. I think both are appropriate. But if you can't preserve your technique, that ends up being a weakness, at least for the time being. You know? So what, what I would do in that instance, and like, like Stuart, someone who lifts the dynamic start. So for all of Stuart's technique work, I have him do a static start. Whenever we're pulling heavy, I'll have him, I'll allow him to use that dynamic start reason being I'm reinforcing his positioning and that mental cue of where his hips need to be in space with the position work so that he's more, he ends up being more consistent on the, on the heavy stuff 
The other thing I'll do is with Sumo, I use a lot of blocks. And the reason I use a lot of blocks is removing that bottom two to four inches of the range of motion allows you to really reinforce that hip close to the bar, knees out, head tall positioning so that you, you know what it feels like with heavier weights in your hands. And then when the bar goes on the floor, if we've been working on our positioning off the floor and our rate of force development with some speed work, it carries over really, really well. So what, what kind of blocks are you, uh, are you looking at in terms of the height, like two inches, four inches? Two to four. So like closer to a meet, we'll go two. Further out, we'll go four, uh, just for specificity purposes. Um, and then, so like how training with a sumo deadlifter might look is, uh, so week one, they may do a heavy set off of the blocks and then some technique work off the floor. Uh, something like, you know, a heavy triple from the blocks, then put the bar on the floor, three sets of three pump fakes. Then the next week, they would do some speed work from the floor. Some, some singles, low rest periods. Um, and then we would cycle through that. As they got more proficient, we could lower the height of the blocks. We could change that positioning drill to an actual like pause deadlift. Um, and then eventually, as we get closer to the meet, one or two weeks of heavier singles from the floor, just to practice, even just one, right? Pull a heavy single at an eight, the next week you deload, that heavy single is your opener, you open with that at the meet, done. Could be that simple. So what, why do you assume, or why do you think that there's um, such a difference between like squat and deadlift? And I guess maybe, maybe you don't assume that, but what I mean by that is like, it seems like you need more exposure, frequent exposure to something like the squat from a technical standpoint to feel comfortable under it versus I know the conventional deadlift, you can, I've seen people who don't even deadlift more than once every two weeks and they're like very good at it and they don't seem to have any sort of like technical regression. But then even between that and like the, the sumo deadlift, um, have you noticed any difference in terms of like being able to preserve that technique without doing the, the specific movement, even if you like, I know you're doing it off blocks and things like that, but kind of get what I'm saying. I do. So what I would say is I think the reason the reason most people can get away with conventional deadlifting less often is because the conventional deadlift will carry more fatigue into the rest of your training because the lower back is taxed more. Typically, the more lower back intensive a movement is, the less often you can touch it or the more fatigue it'll carry through. So typically, the less volume you can train it with. Whereas we have the squat, which for the most part, unless, unless you're a really bent over squatter, isn't going to terribly crush your lower back. Um, and the loads tend to be a little bit lighter for most people. Right, like for myself, my squat and deadlift are very similar, so I, I can't necessarily play by the same rules. Um, hopefully, my deadlift comes up. But uh, in that situation, you have to look at where are the needs of the lifter, uh, what data have you carried through, and and what can you show as like something that's really beneficial for them. Uh, I know for me, I I really like a two squat a week approach, uh, with that secondary squat being quite light, just so like a light exposure. 
For deadlifting, I'll deadlift once a week and then have a supplementary deadlift movement, usually a stiff leg or a Romanian deadlift as my second exposure. It doesn't have to get more fancy than that. I think the reason a lot more people can get away with not conventional deadlifting as often is simply because it's, it is more of like a brute strength kind of movement. It's not as technically intensive. Um, that being said, I think there's a lot of carryover from a conventional to a conventional deadlift from things like stiff legs and Romanians. So you don't necessarily have like those are, those would be, you know, one degree of separation away from a conventional deadlift, right? Because all you're changing is the height of the hip. Um, whereas with a sumo deadlift, it is much more technically intensive. So you, you would tend to need and tend to tolerate more exposures because it's not as taxing on the low back because you're in that upright posture and you need to be in proper position in order to break the floor. So the more refined your positioning can be, the more exposures you, you have with it, uh, the better you're going to be able to display your strength. So it's more that the like technical SRA curve lines up with just your recovery timeline than it is just technique is preserved for longer kind of thing. I would, tend, sort of like what you I, would, I would tend to agree with that statement. I don't. And, and the thing is that SRA curve is going to be different for every person. Like, right. like um, a Dan Green or a Kaylor Wollum. Like Kaylor doesn't pull sumo during his off season at all. If he does, it's really light speed work, which for him is enough to preserve his technique. Whereas Dan will pull sumo almost every week. And actually most weeks he'll pull sumo. Um, it's just what lifters have found that they do best with. And this is where as a coach, as you're coaching someone, you need to be taking in these cues that they're giving you. Hey, my hips feel this with a sumo deadlifter. You're going to have, Hey, my hips feel a little beat up uh, with a conventional deadlifter. You're like, Hey, I'm really, I'm carrying a lot of low back fatigue into my squats. That's what I see the most. So you have to make sure that you have enough recovery between squats and deadlifts. Uh, you have to make sure that you have enough exposures uh, that you're able to continuously improve technique. And you have to make sure that the volume is appropriate, that you're not carrying in too much fatigue uh, to the next session or to the next you know, deadlift session. Notice I said enough, like that's all you need is enough. I think people, people try to do too much. I was actually listening to, uh, I was listening to the Lex Friedman podcast and he had George St. Pierre on, which in itself was friggin' hilarious because his French accent is so bad. He was talking about artificial intelligence and every time he said AI, he said, hey, hi. And he said, instead of Vladimir Putin, he said Vladimir Putin and I was dying. But uh, George St. Pierre, one of his, one of his, uh, one of the questions was, what advice would you give a younger fighter? And uh, he said, you, you do too much. And I think that's a big hole that we're falling into and that I fell victim to in the past as well. All you need is enough. <clears throat> yeah, that was something that I was really, really shocked by. And even um, just like on some of the deadlift sessions that, yeah, that I've been doing lately, like I'll work up to a single top set of sumos and then 
that's it. You know, and I'll, I'll do like maybe two sets of, of like basement RDLs or, or whatever it might be or a tempo, tempo stiff like deadlift or whatever it is. And, yep. the, and I, I'm looking at this and I'm like, oh, this is super easy. And then I do it and I'm like, oh shit, that was, that was hard. I'm really fucked up. But then, yeah, but then like, I, I don't feel banged up all the time. Yeah. You know? One thing and, we, that's been that interesting. Really surprising to me. One thing that's been interesting with your training is, well, we started at five days. And then you started feeling beat up. So we reduced the total volume and it worked really well. And then you started feeling a little bit beat up again. So we took it to four days and then you've been doing really, really well with four days. And then as the weights got heavier, you're like, Hey, I'm starting to get beat up again. So we took the volume down a little bit more and then you started to get even better. So it's been this perpetual state of like trying to find the appropriate amount of volume where you're able to have really, really high outputs, but still recover for the next session. And it's, it's something that I've been trying to find myself as well. Like I have right now, I have three squat exposures a week. One of them is, is uh, one set of split squats, one set of leg press, and then one or three sets of squats. That's it. Those are my three exposures. And honestly, my body has never felt better. So it begs the question of, as you get more refined in your technique and you get more skillful in your execution, how much volume do you really need to progress forward? I don't think much. I think all you need is the appropriate stimulus um, in terms of, in terms of loading and then the appropriate amount of rest in between exposures. And that takes time to develop. Um, but I'm, I'm really, I'm enjoying playing with, uh, I know this is a deadlift conversation, but uh, I'm really enjoying finding for people what that appropriate amount of work is for the desired outcome. Because ultimately, the lighter you can go and still make progress, the longer your lifting career is going to be. And the stronger you are at the end of your lifting career is going to be dependent on how many regressions you can avoid, right? The person who lifts the most consistently for the longest period uninjured is going to be the one who's the strongest at the end. Yeah. And that, so this is actually a conversation I had with um, one of my athletes recently, right? Is, is a lot of the stuff that I do is like RIR based. And, you know, I use kind of a combination of RAR and, uh, and, and percentages. But one of the things that I found is a lot of the times, like, people try and force progression or force adaptation where it's yeah, like... They chase numbers. Yeah. And, and it's like, it says to RIR. They're like, yeah, but I did this last week or I did, you know, less last week. And I'm like, this isn't like a linear progression. It's, it's different, right? It's like... You're, you're not trying to like step it up every single time. Like you, you kind of are, but if you don't, that's not necessarily the point. And, and like, I've seen all sorts of different types of progression where some people, and like, I'm generally like this, where I'll see like weekly progress, you know, yeah. and, and it's pretty reliable until, until it's not. And then I need to make a change, but I've had clients where it's like two months go by and they're still lifting the same weights. And then we pivot and all of a sudden their lifts go up like dramatically, you know, and it's just, they just, for some reason have been like that since I've started with them, you know? And like, I think that is, is a bit of a, 
at a bit of an obstacle as well. Like when you start chasing those numbers yeah. in your deadlift, because then it's like, oh, I need to work harder. And I think that's part of what leads to the additional volume, the additional intensity. The, and you just end up doing more and more and more as opposed to doing like just enough. And I also think that that's a big problem as you get more advanced, because when you're when you're novice, you probably would benefit from a little bit more volume and a little bit less. Agreed. Yes. You know, just to get more practice, more exposure. Yeah, and like build some muscle mass. But then you know, someone like yourself, you filled out your weight class. You're muscular. You've got a good body composition. I don't know how much more you're going to get from doing tens on conventional deadlift. You know what I mean? Well, yeah, and that's kind of a paradigm shift that I've had is like. I train my, my competition lifts for technique and for output. I don't use those movements to drive hypertrophy, right? Like I'm going to do ones to fives on my competition movements. And if I'm going to do sixes, eights, tens, twelves, fifteens, it's on a machine or it's on something that has some sort of external stability. But you talk about, you know, chasing numbers. I'm, I just had this conversation with a lifter today. It's like the whole point of an RPE system is that if you're feeling fatigued and your plan says RPE seven, but last week you hit 500 at an RPE of seven. And this week you're like, oh, well, I'm going to go 520. It's like, yeah, but maybe your RPE of seven this week is 440, 60 pounds off. We can look at, why? But if you continue to push and overshoot your RPE, all you're doing is carrying additional fatigue forward rather than following the plan, getting the appropriate exposure to the appropriate intensity, and then hopefully dissipating enough fatigue after the fact to get back on track. All we've done now is if we're overshooting, we're just digging our hole deeper and deeper. And the concept of oh if i'm if i'm under if i'm underperforming i need to add volume on the back end of the workout or if i'm underperforming uh the whole plan is is in the shitter or if i'm underperforming uh i'm not going to be where i want to be when i want to be there and it's like no you're underperforming because of some reason that we need to dive into but that doesn't mean that the plan has to change today. If you follow the plan and you hit your RPE seven top set, and then you finish the workout, maybe it's in your opinion, too light to generate an adaptation. But the whole point of an RPE system is to respect relative intensity. If you keep chasing absolute intensity, if you keep chasing numbers, you're going to get beaten to the ground and that's when you get hurt. Yeah. And then even beyond that too, right? Like the one thing that I've noticed is if you fudge your numbers up, it makes it really hard to, to know what's going wrong, you know, because yeah. it's like, okay, I'm looking at your program and I'm like, okay, so if we assume that he's hitting these reasonably accurately, this is supposed to be, you know, a seven RPE, this is supposed to be an eight, this is supposed to be a whatever. And I'm looking at it and I'm like, well, I don't really see anything drastically different than what we've been doing previously but then in reality the seven's actually like an 8.5 the eight is more of like a 9.5 or a 10 right. and and you know so it's it makes it very difficult to identify okay where's this problem actually coming from and how do we solve it and i've seen 
people go into that. I don't generally think I have that as a problem. I generally tend to undershoot a little bit, um, which I've actually found to be a little bit more beneficial. <laughs> but even even things like I've also seen athletes too where they'll let's say I say triple at a seven or something like that, and they'll they'll hit a triple and they're like, ah, you know, I think I should have maybe added like five more kilos. So I'm going to add five more kilos and do it again. I'm just like, dude, five more kilos is not going to make a huge difference. And you've just doubled your stimulus for the day. You know what I mean? Like that, that's, that's so much excessive fatigue that we didn't account for initially. So fuck it, hit it next week or the week after whatever it is. And, and that's, that's, that's easy to communicate, but hard to understand. I think for some people sometimes, fuck even for myself, you know? You well, to I mean, we all, we all go through, through challenges. Like, I mean, I squatted heavy for the first time this weekend in probably a year. And I was like, okay, I'm going to hit a top single at seven. And I go and I'm like, I ah, probably is going to be around 600. So I take 600 and I'm like, oh, that was pretty easy. Uh, so I take 640. I'm like, wow, that was really easy too. I'm going to try and go six. What did I think I was going to squat? I thought I loaded 683. And... I smoked it and I'm like, okay, sweet. And then I realized it was 694. I was like, okay, well, even better. Um, and I'm like, that wasn't a seven. But you know what? I don't need to go heavier than that right now. I called it. So it's like, I'm 16 weeks out for my competition. Do I need to be squatting seven plus right now? No, I need to be squatting 832 in 16 weeks. So we need to have this long-term mindset there. Like, yes, you want to strike while the iron's hot and follow the plan. So if your RP sevens are moving, you know, you, you push the load on them as much as you can, but in the same breath, it's like, you're not going to get stronger in one training session. You get stronger with the, the, uh, the aggregate of marginal gains is how you get stronger, but you can absolutely fuck up your whole shit in one session. One bad session can screw up your entire training cycle. You, you tragically hurt yourself, you're done. You strain a muscle, three weeks, right? But if you adhere to the plan and maybe undershoot a little bit, you, you train tomorrow. Yeah, no, 100%. And that, that's a hard thing to keep in the forefront of your mind. I think only it only happens after you've kind of gone through all that, like, being injured and all that stuff. So you're like, ah, you know what? I'm just going to, you know, do my best to suit the program because for me too, like I used to always want to push really, really hard in the gym and like my training sessions are hard and I do work hard and stuff like that. But yep. at the same time, there's like, I don't think it makes any sense. Even, even I'll be talking to my athletes about it where they're like, Oh yeah. Like I want to, I want to feel comfortable hitting what I'm going to hit on the platform. And I'm like, why? Like if you're hitting in the gym, what you're going to hit on the platform, what's the point of competing? You know what I mean? You should be doing more. So it's like, I don't know. It's like you, you go in and you hit heavy stuff enough. So you're like, okay, I know that I have more in the tank, but you don't kill yourself right before a meet so that you're just doing what you could do in the gym. The way, the way I used to do it was I would use like a, a one rep max calculator because I, I found that it was actually like, you know, anecdotes here, right? I found that it was actually quite predictive for me. So it's like, if I want to squat 804, I got to squat 750 for a double. 
So then that would be my last heavy squat workout. And then I'd walk into the meet being like, oh, I can fucking squat 804 already. And it worked every single time. I never took, I never used to take heavy singles in training. Yeah. Now I use that heavy single in the same way because I kind of know how much I have left in the tank. So I'll be like, all right, that moved really well. I probably have, you know, 30, 40 pounds left. And then that's, that's the idea. So like my, the last meet I did in wraps, I ended up, I think I squat 777. Um, that video, that video that you, you called me out on today. Um, my last heavy session before, like my last heavy session of that meat prep, I squatted 765. And it was really good. I knew I was, I knew I could have squatted 800 that day, but I had just torn my quad like a year prior. So I was like, that was my comeback meet. So I got to the meet, smoked 750 something on my second. And I was like, I'm just going to go 777. I'm going to smoke it and they'll be done. Um, but on that day, I knew I'm like, okay, well, I could do 800. Like, I'm fine. So that was my idea of saving it for the next day. Uh, little did I know, four years down the road, haven't been able to take a shot at that again until now. But th that's all to say, we need to get to a place where we look at our training, uh, whether it's squat, bench, or deadlift, as a means of what is the appropriate amount of work that I need to do here? Where am I going to devote my energy? If you're a sumo deadlifter, your energy should be focused on fatigue, uh, or sorry, on speed and positions. So rate of force development and positions. If you're a conventional deadlifter, your goal should be getting your back as strong as possible and learning how to wedge into the bar. That's it. Right. If you can, if, if you can address those areas with those lifts, you will develop some significant proficiency. I would say as a conventional deadlifter, you'll want to be going heavier more often in the conventional deadlift with the sumo deadlift. You'll want to go heavier less frequently, but you'll want to have more frequent exposures to deadlifting. Um, and then if you're a sumo deadlifter as well, your main assistance exercise for the sumo deadlift should be a conventional deadlift of some sort. Because the stronger your back is, the better your positioning will be with the hips off the floor. Yeah, I found that um, <clears throat> one thing that has, has been challenging for a handful of athletes that, um, that have coached to the sumo deadlift has been like the the wedge obviously and generating impulse initially um specifically their brace like i find they kind of get into a little bit too much extension and yes. they lose that they lose that like ribs over pelvis position yeah. and then a lot of the times that's also when they start getting that that hip pain and that was even something you cued me for the more for the squat but i actually found that doing something similar for the deadlift actually helped quite a bit and and yep. so um, is, is there anything that you focus on to help, help improve the bracing for the sumo, especially because there is that kind of time where you're generating impulse. And I guess for guys who don't know what impulse is, it's like, it's, it's force over time, which is why you'll see someone pull on a sumo deadlift for like maybe a second or two, and then it breaks off the ground. So one thing that I try to cue is when you're in the wedge position, you're trying to make your torso as short as possible. 
So driving those armpits to your hips, closing them off. So you're engaging those lats, making your torso small, drive, pulling the ribs to the pelvis, not going into a posterior tilt per se, but definitely getting a little bit of flexion out of that, out of that thoracic spine. Then as you're wedging in, you're trying to get the thoracic spine to extend. And the way I cue that is with the chin back. So I'll say, drive that chin back. Think about being a puppet on a string. So the string is pulling the crown of your head to the top of the ceiling. And what that should do, it should preserve pelvic position. Where we're, where we're going to see poor pelvic positioning is if the adductors are really, are, are really weak. Because if the adductors aren't engaged, you'll go into anterior pelvic tilt, which is going to turn off the, that anterior core and place all of the load into the hamstrings and glutes and lumbar spine. So if we can keep that neutral pelvis, we can keep the adductors engaged and in like in an, in a, in not in a lengthened position. They are the, they are very, very strong hip extenders, right? So if my adductors are on and I'm getting more hip extension strength out of them, all that, all I've done to do that is neutralize my pelvic position. That can be done a few different ways. It can be done, as I mentioned, by cueing the, the torso to be short, chin, chin retracted, head tall, or it could be cued as your intention into the floor. A lot of people will try to really root the feet into the floor and try to like externally rotate the knees as hard as they can. What that's going to do it's going to roll them onto the outside of the feet. So what you want to do instead is I pull, push the big toe down and then I try to get them to root from the hip. So to try and open the hip, screw the hip into the floor and that'll drive the knees a little bit more forward, which we want. That way we have a little bit of quad drive. The hips are slightly closer to the bar and you can get into a better position. So depending on what the athlete's doing at the foot, it can usually dictate what's happening at the pelvis, usually. That's, that's a great point. And actually, you said something there as well that I've seen pretty commonly, and that's that negative shin angle. So the idea that you need to have like a perfectly vertical shin angle, which you know works for some people, but then a lot of the times I've noticed people take it to the extreme where they actually have like a negative where it's their knees are now like yeah. behind the bar almost and sort of like directed inwards, almost like they're kind of internally rotating a little bit. And, and sometimes that's just cause they're a little too wide, but sometimes it's like a, the, the, it's just like a positional thing. Like they're just, they're trying to get this like theoretical optimal position, but not necessarily understanding what they're trying to accomplish. I find that happens when the lifter tries to sit back into the deadlift and turn it into a pull. Yeah, Whereas yeah. I, I try to teach the sumo deadlift, especially off the floor, I teach it as a push. So if you're doing a sumo deadlift with relative proficiency, there should be no change in torso angle until the hips are, or until the knees are locked. So think about that for a moment. The hip stays in the same position relative to the vertical plane of the bar. You initiate contact, you initiate it, you call it an impulse, right? So you put impulse into the bar, the hips come forward, they keep, they stay vertical because the knees are pushing, the, the legs are pushing. So the hips stay in a vertical path. And then as soon as the knees lock, then you extend the hip. 
It happens, it happens relatively at the same time, but the knees will lock first. And if that's the case, you know, the, the listeners can't see me, but that torso angle isn't going to change because the shoulders are staying on top of the barbell the entire time. That's, that's why sumo deadlift, the leverage is increased because as the hips get, as the hips get closer to the bar, the knees are already extended. And then the hip, then, then that change in torso is very, very small. So these lifters that have incredibly good uh, sumo deadlifts, think of like a Jamal Browner, think of a Kaylor Woolham, Dan Green. If you were to watch their deadlift from the side, their torso angles don't change until the knees are locked because they're already vertical. Yeah. So one, one thing I also uh, notice that's fairly common is, and you mentioned this earlier, kind of at the beginning, is um, people losing their upper back position, which ends up causing, causing them to lift once they get past the knees for, for conventional. Um, I, I've seen that pretty commonly. Yeah. But I've also seen that like doing direct back work doesn't necessarily do as much as you would maybe think. and. Uh you know, I, I like utilizing maybe like, let's say snatch grip deadlifts and some other stuff, but like, I was just wondering what are some things that you have found to be reasonably effective uh, to, to help mitigate that? So one thing that I try to teach for conventional deadlifters is the goal should not be to extend the back. So you're not trying to get into extension of the spine. Again, you're trying to shorten the distance of the torso. So arms long lats to hips, trying to shorten the distance between the shoulder and like the vertical plane of the barbell, which will be the shoulder and the hip. Now, one thing that I try to fix is the idea that the thoracic spine needs to be in an extended or even neutral position. Thoracic flexion and conventional deadlift is totally okay. As long as it's a flex position that's locked with the lats and not a flex position that results from losing an extended position. So what you'll see sometimes is a lifter try to get into an extended spine. Then as soon as they go to initiate off the floor, their lats will pull down, their mid back will come up, their lower back might stay neutral, it might not. But if they get into that, it's almost like an eccentric loading of the lats. What happens there is you're not able to maintain spinal segmentation. So because the lats are being lengthened, you have no control over when that stops. The spine just keeps flexing. Then you'll get lumbar flexion and then you can't use the glutes to lock out. That's why you miss. So you lose the upper back, but losing the upper back results in losing the lower back. And then when you lose the lower back, you can't extend the hip. What I try to teach is a slightly rounded thoracic spine and the lats locked in. So when you go to put impulse into the barbell, there is no eccentric lengthening of that tissue because it's already locked down. You're already in a flexed position. You can't get more flexed. And if you're already flexed, you can maintain spinal segmentation. So you'll see if, if, if the listeners ever watch me deadlift, they'll see me round my upper back as I reach for the floor. And then I lock my lats in and I keep that position. So my lower back is neutral, but my thoracic spine is flexed. And then at lockout, 
I don't have to do anything with my upper body to extend my thoracic spine because as I bring my hips through, I'm standing tall. When you see people try to like extend their back at lockout, it's because their glutes can't work and they have to use the, the erectors to lock out the lift. That one's always so sketchy to me. It just feels like you're trying to smush your spine through. <laughs> I hate the, the usually see it with female lifters where they'll go to initiate off the floor. And if you're watching from the front, their belt will disappear because there's so much flexion. And oh, then yeah. as they lock out, the belt just goes boop and it's like their lower back just snaps through. That always makes me cringe. Yeah. Yeah. There's a couple of those that are a little freaky. Man, that being said, like a, a little bit of flexion isn't going to be the end of the world, right? We know that neutral is a range. So the goal is whatever position that you start the back in off the floor, it maintains through the deadlift. You don't want to be starting in a position and then flexing more. You want to lock whatever position you're in as you complete the lift. Mm. Sorry, I interrupted you. No, 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 it's all good. Um, so, so assuming, assuming you do that and it's still at a point where, you know, the, the queuing has worked a bit, but it's not quite as, as effective as maybe you'd want. And you kind of gave it uh, a reasonable shot, let's say like a month or two or something like that. Um, where would you go from there? Like the lifter still has, has, is having trouble with back positioning. Yeah. Like it's improved, but it's, it's like, it only improved to a certain point and, and there's still a, a reasonable amount of like energy leakage. Big RDL guy, very big RDL guy. I love, I love using the RDL to teach the hinge. Um, especially if you're doing the RDL properly, all you're missing is a very slight touch to the floor and then you're doing conventional deadlift. Um, the other thing I would use is a stiff leg deadlift from a deficit, really using the lats to initiate off the floor. So teaching the lifter to initiate that stiff leg deadlift by pulling the shoulders to the hips. And that will teach them uh, bracing for sure to keep that low back neutral. Um, and you know what? I do a lot of core work. Like there's core work programming every day for my athletes, some type of core work. Uh, for the deadlift, I'm a big fan of any type of core work that involves the hip flexors. So we're talking about hanging leg raises or knee raises, uh, GHR sit-ups, um, any type of like dragonflies, uh, anything that's going to involve the hip flexors within the abdominal uh, abdominal training is going to be really effective for uh, for building starting resilience, starting position resilience in the deadlift. Why is that? Well, so if your hip flexors aren't strong and engaged, you're going to have, how do I put this? So hip stability is a combination of factors, right? So you have multiple muscles acting on the pelvis. So the abdominal muscles are going to be really, really involved in that anterior oblique sling. So your obliques into the opposite adductor. Then with the posterior oblique sling, you have lat glute QL. Now, if, if there is a leak anywhere in that chain, right? So if say the lats aren't engaged, that, that psoas and that rec fem, that's gonna be kind of the, 
It's almost like the floodgate. It's like the last line of defense. So if that's really strong, because the hips are going to be extending as you lift. So the more contraction you can get out of them in the bottom, I personally find the more you can integrate them into bracing, the more stable your bottom position is going to be. That's what I found. Now, I'm sure there's going to be a lot of people who don't agree with me, but when you're talking about being in a flexed hip position, the hip flexors help you maintain position in the flexed hip. Wrong. (laughs) Yeah. Just one of those things you try to, I'm trying to explain it in a way where everyone will understand. Um, Mm -hmm. And that's really, it's really all it is. When you look at the musculature of the hip, like the, the way in which the pelvis is stabilized, it makes sense to integrate everything within what you're trying to do. So if we're trying to train a flexed hip position, we need to train the abdominals in a flexed hip position. Mm-hmm. So I kind of wanted to open up to, to you then and just see what your thoughts were in terms of some of the, some of the bigger things that you see that are maybe misunderstood or some of the things that are maybe missed when discussing the deadlift, when practicing the deadlift, um, when peaking the deadlifts, a- anything really that you think is pertinent to discuss that we haven't already touched on. This has been a little bit more of a different conversation than the previous yeah. one. Um, the, I would say that the, the thing that I see messed up the most or improperly implemented is being true to the intent of what you're trying to do with them. So I routinely see people doing like sets of six to eight on a pause deadlift or, um, you know, multiple like heavy long sets of, of deadlifting. If the goal is technical proficiency, we should be training within a rep range that is heavy enough to perform the lift without technical breakdown, right? So it needs to be heavy enough that we need to put force into it, but light enough that we can preserve technique. If your goal is to improve positioning, doing a lift to a point of fatigue that positioning cannot be maintained doesn't make sense. Right. So if I'm doing a pause deadlift set of six reps, it's either going to be so light that it won't matter until the last couple of reps, or it's going to be so heavy that I can't perform the lift properly for the prescribed amount of reps and then my position breaks down. So I'm just getting stronger in shit positions. Whereas if you keep the rep range lower, you can go heavy enough that it's hard, but because you're not accumulating as much fatigue during the, during the repetitions, you can maintain the integrity of your positions. Just because you're getting tired doesn't mean you're getting better. The other thing we know too is that barbell lifts that are internally stabilized done for high repetitions are going to be more uh, centrally fatiguing. They're going to fatigue the central nervous system to a greater degree than heavier weights for lighter sets uh, for lower amounts of reps. So it would stand to reason that a set like that would carry fatigue more than a heavier set done for less reps. 
So if a heavier set done for less reps accumulates less central fatigue and allows us to maintain our positioning while putting enough force into the bar to make it challenging, it would stand to reason that that would be a superior, uh, a superior implementation. Now, the other thing that I see is a very over-reliance on barbell movements to train the back. Like if you're using a barbell to do deadlifts, stiff leg deadlifts, then barbell rows, your back is going to be really fucking tired when it comes to squat in a couple of days. If you're already training the, the, the erectors through the deadlift, through the stiff leg deadlift, get on a machine, train the lats, train the mid back. That's, that's honestly like the underutilization of machines or chest supported variations startles me. I've never personally gotten much out of barbell rows. Like I can, I can row well over 400 pounds for reps. I don't really think it carries over to my deadlift. It looks cool. I post it on Instagram sometimes. Um, but I think, I think we, we stand to benefit a lot more from supporting the chest, isolating the musculature of the back, primarily, you know, those, those rhomboids, um, those mid back extensors, the lats, we get a lot more work done with those machines and then we can integrate them on the main lift. And again, we're talking about fatigue carryover. If I'm doing a barbell row that's internally stabilized, that means that I'm carrying more fatigue. Typically I'm going to be doing more repetitions. So if I can accumulate less fatigue and get more of a stimulus on the target muscle, I'm going to use machines and it's going to be better for me long term. Yeah, that's, so that's actually honestly something that I've kind of, I've, I've changed my mind quite a bit on this, I'd say over the last year is the, the, how much volume do you actually need? And it's still something I find myself going back and forth on to really find like where I stand on that or like not where I stand, but maybe an effective solution. Cause I used to do a lot of volume and I found that got me very strong and, you know, but obviously the stronger, got you very the less, yeah, exactly. It's like the stronger you get, the more damage you're doing to yourself. And so I think, you know, it's, it's, it's tricky. Right. And, and I was, um, again, just so incredibly surprised at how little volume I'm doing now, relatively speaking, you know, like, I mean, a couple months before I started working with you, I remember I did six sets of 10 deficit deadlifts with 500. You know what I mean? <laughs> it was like, yeah but, yeah, but you still couldn't pull 700. Th exactly. That's my point. Right. right. So, so then my question is like, is that actually making you stronger? Is that just making you better at pulling 500 for reps at the deficit? Exactly. Exactly. And I, from a, from a conceptual framework, I always come back to this idea of meaningful repetition. So meaningful repetitions are going to be the repetitions that either lead to adaptation or hyper, like that, that lead to ad adaptation. So for strength, we know that needs to be over 80%. We need to be, you know, around that, you know, RPE seven to eight range likely to get the best adaptation. It's going to be heavy enough that we can maintain technique light enough that we don't carry over too much fatigue. When we look at hypertrophy, well, we know that internal stability creates more central fatigue. We know that high repetitions create more central fatigue. So if we're going to be doing higher repetition sets, 
we should eliminate the need for internal stability, right? Because that's going to mitigate some of the fatigue you carry through. Then you have to look at, okay, can I get this done with less reps? Which is why that, that idea of hypertrophy taking place between six and 12, right? Because that seems to be the happy place where we can lift weights heavy enough that they don't fuck us up and light and sorry, heavy enough that we get a stimulus and light enough that we don't fuck ourselves up. When we eliminate internal stability and go external stability, that's when we can focus on output. That's when we can focus on, you know, where, like how, what muscles are under tension, where we're, where we're trying to get that hypertrophy stimulus. Using barbell lifts for hypertrophy just conceptually doesn't make sense in the fatigue management model. Yeah. Yeah. And that, that was a big part of like, that was a big realization for me as well is just like, cause you know, if, if I hit a new, I don't know, top set of five and under top set of five, three, two, one, whatever it is, yeah. like I know with a pretty high degree of certainty, that's going to probably translate to a higher one RM for me. Yep. Right. But then, you know, doing more sets of 10, I'm not convinced that that really does anything. And like you said, because there's, there's such a difference. And this is something that, like I said, that I struggled with for a long time was the understanding that like strength is a skill. Yes. Like I, I, would, I would look at it as like a physical quality and I'm like, oh, well, I can lift this for more now. I must be stronger. I'm this, I'm this, and this. And it's like, and that is true conceptually. But then I think once you really, really get a good grasp of what is meant when they say strength is a skill, it completely changes. And, and it's like, I find that every three months I'm looking back at some of these concepts that I thought I understood and I'm like, Oh wow, there's, there's more layers to this, you know? And, and I mean, as simple as a concept superficially as it is, it's, it's, it's just interesting when you kind of see what that means from a program design execution standpoint and how that changes and evolves over time. And now like one thing that, I will say right off the bat is like my programs didn't always look like this, right? Like I've gone through the same evolution of programming um, that most people do. I've just been doing it for 16 years. Right. So I'm, I'm, I am where I am. Actually, fuck. It's been longer than that. <sighs> Old. Um, what, like 47, 48 now. Like minimum. That. Yeah, I got <laughs> salt and pepper, salt and pepper chest hair now. Well, that's just um, dignified though. You're distinguished. Yeah, fuck my whole, like the whole side of my beard is, is salt and pepper. That's why I keep it short. Um, so the, uh, yeah, so I mean, I've gone through this paradigm. I've always believed in hitting heavy sets on my assistance work. So like if it was four sets of 10, it'd be escalating four sets of 10 to one top set. But now looking back, I'm like, well, but if I'm doing four sets of 10 and only maybe the last two sets were meaningful. Why the fuck did I do the first two sets of 10? All I did was accumulate fatigue. And I'm like, all right, well then I'm going to cut those two sets out and see what happens. I cut those out and I did like sets of two or three as I, as I acclimated to the load. And then not only were my heavy sets heavier, but I wasn't as tired the next day. I was able to train hard. So I was like, okay, well this makes sense. Now, how little, like it started with the squat because my knees were so beat up, I couldn't volume squat. So like, well, how much squatting do I really need to be able to do? And turns out not that much. So then I was like, well, if that applies to my squat, it should apply to my deadlift as well. And it is to a lesser extent. I still find that I need quite a bit of deadlift volume just because I'm not as proficient in the deadlift. 
And then with the bench press, same thing, right? I'm not as proficient in the bench press, so I need more practice. And that's kind of the, the, the distinguishing factor that I come to is like the less proficient you are in a movement, likely the more volume you're going to need to perform, but you're need, you're going to need to adjust either the exercise selection or the, uh, the intensity volume relationship to determine how much you actually need to do. I personally have found micro dosing my stimulus to be more effective. So right now I'm benching three times a week, deadlifting, twice and squatting three times but my squats as i've said one's a leg press one's a squat one's a split squat and there's only five total sets during the week so micro dosing the stimulus versus having it all in one day yeah and and the one thing that uh i i think it was you that posted this not too long ago was talking about the lack of intensity for assistance work and accessories. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and it's it's honestly so crazy because like you don't really think about that until you actually start like looking around and and seeing what people are doing, and then you're like, oh wow, they're just kind of like, you know, fucking the dog sort of like they're do, they're going through the motions, but it it's unlikely that it's going to be heavy enough to actually do anything super meaningful, and and if it's not, then they're probably just going to end up doing a bunch of additional volume that's probably unnecessary and accumulating a little bit more fatigue than it is you know, generating an actual like adaptation. It's like, why are we doing this? Why, why are you doing your dumbbell bench press? Why are you doing your dips? Right? Like dips say I did one top set. I did I think 145 for a set of eight because my PR was eight and I wanted nine and I missed my ninth rep and I was fucking pissed. So then I went to 88 and I did 17. So, but those, both of those sets were to absolute muscular failure, right? Then I went to, uh, what did I do after that? Then I went to shoulders. I did some shoulder raises. I did two sets to failure. Then I did three light sets of tricep extensions and three light sets of bicep curls. That was my workout today after, buff, after Buffalo benching. So after my three sets of Buffalo bench, I did two, so three, two sets of dips, two sets of shoulders, two sets of biceps, two sets of triceps. I did 11 total sets today, but all of them, like other than the three Buffalo bar sets, all of them are to failure. So that's something that for me, at least definitely is not intuitive. Like the idea of taking some of those assistance exercises to, to failure, I would assume that that would be very fatiguing but it's really not like so at all. fatigue. The, the, the models of fatigue right now are still quite nebulous, but what we're seeing is that heavy weights are peripherally fatiguing. They fatigue the muscles, light weights for high reps done to failure, of course. Right. So heavy weight to failure, low reps, lighter weight to failure, high reps. Lighter weight to failure, high reps is more central nervous system fatiguing. So how do you decrease the central nervous system fatigue? You externally stabilize and you choose movements where the absolute load is lower. If you're able to do that, you don't carry as much fatigue, but that's also why those accessory movements 
when you're heading towards a peak, what do you drop? You drop assistance work, right? So instead of two sets, you do one set. Maybe you take out an entire exercise because that's what's going to offload your, your, your CNS fatigue. And it's, it, that's not, to me, that's not intuitive because immediately when I think high reps, I think metabolic. Immediately when I think metabolic, I think muscular fatigue, I think peripheral. But it's not, it's central fatigue. Your, your CNS is more burnt out by high reps. And your CNS is also burnt out more by more integrated movements. So high reps with X internally stabilized movements that are typically whole body, right? So a, a, head, a, a high rep set of squats is going to be more fatiguing than a high rep set of hack squats is going to be more fatiguing than a high rep set of lunges, which is going to be more fatiguing than a high rep set of leg extension mm-hmm. from a central nervous system perspective. And then depending on what load you're using, there's going to be more peripheral fatigue, the heavier the weight is. So you're probably going to be able to hack squat more weight than you will for a squat. Uh, Yeah. 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 Um, But then you're not going to be able to lunge or leg extension as much weight. So there's less fatigue there. So it's always a cost benefit conversation that you're having of, what's the, what's the benefit to me? Like what adaptation am I chasing? How efficacious is this implementation going to be versus what's the fatigue cost on the other end? Mm-hmm. Right. What's, what's the return on my investment of fatigue? Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. It's, it's, it's been interesting because again, like even just going through some of these like new strategies, the, the biggest one has just been, the, the super low volume and utilizing top sets in, uh, in assistance work, which for me, I haven't really done those things very much in the past, but yeah, it, it just, I'll pose the question the other way different. I'll pose the question the other way too, right? What would mean, like, why would we do more volume on something? Be to learn the pathway, learn the muscle, more practice in the movement, right? Yeah. Do you really need to practice a hack squat? No, like it, it, it yeah. makes sense. It's just, I think that at least for me, a lot of the stuff that I have learned, read conferences, books, right. all this stuff, a lot of that stuff talks about driving, you know, volume. And even if you look at like, let's say Louis and Westside and like Louis is a smart guy. Sometimes maybe how he communicates is a little confusing, but like he talks about Prolepin's chart, obviously, and I'm, I'm not super sold on that, but I mean, he talks about how, you know, when, when the lifter stagnates, you increase volume. And then you look at, um, I don't know, a lot, a lot of, a lot of other coaching paradigms, they talk about a lot of volume being a, a catalyst for the base of your strength, which then is transmutated when you go into the peaking phase and all that stuff. And, and nowadays it's my perspective on that is a little different and I'm kind of calling into question some of those things that I, I used to believe and, and make that's what you need to do. That's what you need no? to do hundred percent of the time. You need to call into question what your beliefs are mm-hmm. and you need to challenge them at every turn. You need to challenge them because that's how you progress as a coach. That's how you get better. Yeah. Well, it's funny too, because I, I don't know where I heard this, but someone was asking me about like, an article that I wrote or something like that a while back. And I'm like, Oh God, I hate that article. 
And they're like, really? Why? But you wrote it. And I'm like, yeah, dude, like I write an article and then six months later, I'm like, oh, fuck, I hate this. I'm so ashamed. You know what I mean? It's like, I do it differently. And, and I don't remember where I read this, but someone was like, if you don't look back on a program that you made like from two months ago or something like that and absolutely yeah. hate yourself, you're a bad coach. And I was like, yeah, oh, yeah that makes sense. <laughs> Tony and I just did a podcast about things we fucked up when we were younger. It was so good. I was like, I looked at one of my programs because I was going through uh, for one of my presentations on Coach's Corner, I was going through old athlete programs that I wrote to look at how I implemented plyometrics. And, uh, and some of the fucking programs I wrote, I was like, how did these kids do well? Like, how did they do well? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Now I look at, oh, I look at them and I'm like, man, well, I could do this so much better now. And the reality is, is, well, the kids did get better. So why did they get better? And then that, then you get into that yeah. question. Like, yeah. was it really that bad? Maybe, maybe not. Right. So well, that's where I think a lot of, that's where I think a lot of that stuff comes into play where it's like, you know, when people are talking about strength is developed at 85 plus percent of one RM, you know, and you hear that and you're like, well, no, cause these guys are all getting stronger. And it's like, I think a lot of the, those things are really only applicable to the people who have that skill development where it's like their squat looks the same every time their right. deadlift, their bench, they're strong enough. Like they're, they, they've, they're now, a, you know, a fairly experienced athlete. They're quite strong. And so I think a lot of those, you know, guidelines become a lot more relevant to those individuals where specificity becomes exponentially more important and transference and specificity overlap much more significantly than when you were maybe a novice or even an intermediate. And so, you know, those, those finer points start to make much more difference, right? Even things like lifestyle, you know, I remember when I was, you know, fighting, I would train six hours a day and I would work a full-time job, wouldn't really sleep, ate like maybe a hundred grams of protein a day and then like 900 grams of carbs or some crazy shit like that. And I was vegan and I was doing all this weird shit and like, and I was just getting better. Yeah. Oh yeah. I was a vegan for like a year and then like a vegetarian for maybe six months or a year before that as well. And, uh, I was in like terrible health because I didn't know what I was doing. I just basically was like, well, I guess I'm not gonna eat animal products anymore. And then that was basically the extent of my research. And, uh, and, you know what I mean? Like I got away with so much and I was, I was a, I was an elite boxer, you know, and like an elite athlete and my conditioning was like top notch. I never got tired. And if I, if I miss like 70 grams of protein or 50 grams of protein now, I swear to God, I will feel differently the next day. I will not. Yeah. But that could also be a nocebo, right? Sure. I just mean like, I, I just mean to say that little things affect me a lot more than now. You know, that I've been a little bit stronger and I'm more aware of, of what's going on. Ever since we had our conversation with John Kiley about general adaptation syndrome and the idea of, you know, an athlete's belief in the program and how that shapes outcomes. And he, he made a statement and I think this might be a good, a good way to end the podcast is he made the claim that the coach is the placebo. The coach being If you have faith in your coach, if you believe that the coach's program is going to lead you towards success, that in itself is enough to cause a positive adaptation. Think about situations in which you thought you were doing the best thing possible for yourself. It usually ended well. Whenever you had questions about the the validity of, of what you were doing, it usually ended poorly. 
so he his concept is just you, 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 you the idea of the general adaptation curve where you have like stimulus detraining super compensation response adaptation he's like the stimulus isn't as important to the adaptation as the belief of what the stimulus is going to do so if you believe that this is what's going to help you and you do it you'll get better and vice versa and now we're talking about like okay like you know is this amount of volume appropriate and blah 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 well, at that point, at that point of you being vegan and training six hours a day, you probably thought you were doing exactly what you needed to do. But now that you have the knowledge to know that it's not, if you tried to do it again, it wouldn't fucking work. It's, it's honestly crazy how the mind shapes the body, it's right? Fucking bananas, man. It's so crazy. You heard like, you, you, you would it, it's so funny that you would hear someone like John Kylie like for those of you guys who don't know like he was on the podcast you check it out it's a super interesting uh, episode actually your episode was really awesome as well that that you had him on as well your your podcast yeah. but um dude is super smart he's a very very elite sport coach and this guy is saying that his program is less responsible for I, I, I'm paraphrasing but he's like yeah my, my programming was at least equally responsible as the belief you know, that, that yeah. they gave, that they had in my program for producing results. And you're like, when you hear someone who's that level say some shit like that, you're like, okay, I need to take a minute to digest the implications of that statement, you know? Yes. And it's, I think it's a hundred percent true because you hear these stories of like a uh, guy takes a pill and thinks it's poison, ends up having a heart attack when in fact it was a sugar pill. Yeah. Right, like that shit happens all the time. Or the steroid, the steroid placebo one. That one is fucking bananas too. Steroids are definitely not placebo. Let me tell you. No, 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 no. The uh, <laughs> just there was, there was there was a paper. There was a paper a while back, and it was like, oh god, I can't remember exactly what it was. But essentially, I, re- I remember it was great. Yeah, it was like they they had they had two control groups. One was given actual steroids. The other was given a, a placebo. They both produced like very similar results. Steroids produce slightly better results, but then they both told them um, that, or they told one group, part of who had taken steroids, part of who hadn't, that they were taking a placebo the entire time. And then they told the other group, half of who did take a placebo, half of who didn't, they were taking steroids the whole time. And, and so they kind of like unblinded them, supposedly. And the, the, even the people who were taking steroids saw a significant decrease in performance post, uh, yeah. post, post training, post intervention. And then the placebo intervention continued making progress even after that, because they're like, Oh, so I was taking steroids and they, they just jumped right. And I was like, fuck, that's amazing. Yeah, it outperformed steroids. And I, I don't think that that's, you know, obviously going to be ubiquitous, but it's, it's enough to make you stop and be like, okay, this shit's crazy. Anyways, um, you know, it's, it's been an hour and a half. This is a super interesting conversation. I feel yeah, like man. it kind of went a, a little bit away from the, the deadlift, but those are the best. Uh, yeah, dude. Super interesting conversation, man. Thanks a lot, brother. Oh, sorry. before we end off, uh, where can yeah. people find you? Uh, yeah, man. So you can find me on Instagram at Paulo need or my website, www.masterathletic.com. Uh, you can also find me on coaches corner, you, uh, www.coachescorneru.com or coaches corner university on Instagram.
Awesome. So all that stuff's going to be in the show notes, guys. Definitely check that out. He's got a lot of great content. Coach's Corner puts out lots of great stuff as well. And thanks so much, Paul. I will talk to you later. My pleasure, dude.